Hey there, it's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have a super quick, exciting announcement to share with all of you. For the first time on Time for Coffee, we have a free giveaway to offer you. In honor of the season of giving that we're all immersed in right now, I am so excited to tell you that Time for Coffee has 50 global giving gift cards with $25 already loaded on them to give out to Java junkies between now and Christmas. In case you're not familiar with global giving, it's the largest global crowdfunding community connecting nonprofits, donors, and companies in nearly every country around the world. These gift cards will make wonderful stocking stuffers or thank you gifts or secret Santa presents to give your colleagues or your professors or guidance counselors, your mentors, your mailman, you get the idea. Even that cute guy or girl you want to get to know better but don't want to give them something romantic, at least not yet. The way these gift cards work is that you can redeem them by going on to the Global Giving website and picking any of the hundreds of different amazing projects Global Giving is featuring in countries around the world. Then your $25 gift card can be used to support any of these projects. And the gift card is non-denominational with a super festive holiday vibe. And all you have to do to win one of these electronic gift cards is to email me at andrea at time the number four coffee.org. That's Andrea at time the number four coffee.org. Just say, hey, I'd love a global giving gift card. And the first 50 people to hit me up for one of these gift cards will get it in their email box on Monday, December 17th, giving you plenty of time to figure out who you want to give it to. Thanks so much, everybody. Happy holidays and enjoy the show. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's Time for Coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in working in the nonprofit world, or if you're interested in business development or corporate social responsibility, also known as CSR, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has spent her entire career working at the intersection of helping companies do good globally. And what a wonderful place that must be to spend your time. As we enter the season of giving, whether to loved ones or perhaps to those we don't even know through charitable gifts of time or treasure, I am so excited to introduce you to a variety of professionals each day this week who are working at Global Giving, which is the largest global crowdfunding community connecting nonprofits, donors, and companies in nearly every country. They help nonprofits from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe and hundreds of places in between to access the tools, training, and support they need to be more effective and make our world a better place. But before I introduce you to Donna Kalajan, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays, giving you an overview of the five episodes we're going to be dropping each day that week. 
just head over to the Time for Coffee website. That's at time, the number four, coffee.org, and it's right there on the homepage. And while you're there, you can check out all the other T4C episodes that are organized by career on the homepage. Just scroll down a little bit and you'll see all of them right there. Or if you prefer to see the episodes chronologically as they were released, you are welcome to check out the T4C podcast page, which you can find by clicking on the link at the top of the T4C website. Now, my friends, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite hot espresso drink because it is time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today is the one and only Donna Kalajan, the Chief Business Partnerships Officer at Global Giving. Global Giving's mission is to unleash the potential of people around the world to make positive change happen. Global Giving is a nonprofit and the largest global crowdfunding community connecting nonprofits donors, and companies in nearly every country. They help nonprofits from Afghanistan to Zimbabwe access the tools, training, and support they need to be more effective and make our world a better place. Donna, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am fired up. Woo! I love it. Okay. So, Chief Business Partnerships Officer. That is quite a mouthful. Did you come up with that title yourself? Let's be honest. It has evolved over time. And we came up with Chief Business Officer many, many years ago when my then boss said, you need a bigger, badder title. And so we came up with that. A couple of years ago, we got very clear on the definition of the job that I have today. I've worn a lot of hats here at Global Giving over the years. And so the partnerships piece was added a few years ago to be very, very specific to the work that I do now, leading the team that works with companies on great philanthropic and community investment programs around the world. Well, it is a very impressive title, fittingly so, for a very impressive woman. So, Donna, take us inside what the Chief Business Partnerships Officer at Global Giving does. What are the primary functions of your current job? I would say that the job breaks up into two main pieces. One is as one of the members of a five-person executive team at Global Giving, I play the role of strategist, cheerleader, counselor, coach, finance person, HR person, anything that uh, is involved in being on point virtually 24-7 for the success of the team here at Global Giving and for the organization overall. And so I work very closely with my colleagues, not just on the executive team, but the entire team of about 55 people, everything from strategy to cleaning the kitchen in our kitchen week. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going to say therapist, because I'm guessing there's a little a little role for get on my couch and talk to Donna. Absolutely. And that's honestly one of the most wonderful parts of my job and something that has made my work very, very rewarding. The rest of my time is spent leading a team that is constantly responding to and meeting new 
corporate partners. And so what that means is companies as varied as Nike, Discovery Communications, Facebook, all sorts of really, really interesting companies, both in the manufacturing and the digital world, who want to either make corporate contributions or empower their employees or their customers to help nonprofits get the resources they need to thrive. And so our team cultivates new partnerships, creates marketing materials to try to attract new companies to our community of givers. And we manage ongoing partnerships with these companies. Global giving is a little different from most nonprofits. We don't fundraise from companies. We provide support and services to companies enabling their global philanthropy programs. And so our partnership managers really, like in an advertising or communications agency or a professional services firm, are really spending their time responding to changes customers and partners want to make interfacing with the rest of the organization. So I lead that team, help set strategy, and I also manage a couple of these key partnerships myself. So could you break down for us, Donna, or give us an example of a partnership that Global Giving has made with a corporation and how that partnership has played out? Sure. So the one that I'll use is Ford Motor Company, which everyone should be aware of who Ford Motor Company is. Well, they have something called the Ford Motor Company Fund, which is the philanthropic arm of the company. It is distinct from the Ford Foundation, which has no relationship anymore to the company, but was created by the founders of Ford. So we first met the Ford Motor Company Fund about a decade ago, and they were thinking about making some grants to organizations, to nonprofit organizations in a couple of countries where they had plants. And so as a global nonprofit with a core competency of vetting organizations, nonprofits around the world and dispersing money around the world all the time, we helped them identify and support just a small number of nonprofits initially. Fast forward to a few years later in the car companies, as most people will remember, or they can Google it, we're really, really struggling in the US. And so Ford put that activity on hold for a period of time. When they were able to really solidify their own financial situations, they came back to us and said, hey, you helped us a few years ago, and we're ready to really make this program rock and roll. And that was six or seven years ago. In that time, we have now worked with them and have grown the program so that we this year will help them give to more than 130 nonprofits in, I believe it's about 40 countries, more than $11 million just this year. And these are often grants that are being supported by employee volunteer days as well. So that partnership is one that we have really grown from a seed, or since we're on time for coffee, a pod. And it is, has been super rewarding and we've learned together with the Ford Motor Company Fund team as, as we've taken steps into new and exciting countries and areas of funding. Thanks for that example. Donna, can you take me inside a typical day for you and try to bring to life what the job description of a chief business partnerships officer would say so that if I were a fly in the wall in your office, I would be observing you moving around, 
meeting with all different kinds of people, whether it's in your executive team role, working with your finance team or with your development team, what are the various things that you do on any given day? Well, the first thing I do is open my eyes and look at my 75-pound black lab Bodie. And Bodie is my canine alarm clock. So that's how (laughs) virtually every day starts for me when I'm not on the road, quickly followed by a cup of coffee. Of course. I want to ask you though about Bodhi. Is he pretty reliable? Is it the same time every day or is his sort of internal clock off at times? Bodhi is painfully reliable. He does not understand the concept of weekends. And just this past weekend, we learned that he did not understand the concept of daylight savings time changes. So yes, we can rely on Bodhi, no question. We can also rely on him to let us know when it's time for his dinner. I mean, you know, that we're talking about the most important part of his day, for God's sakes. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. After I am awakened by my canine alarm clock, get my cup of coffee and get the newspaper, when my workday starts is literally at home over a cup of coffee, scanning emails. Because personality-wise, I like to get a jump on anything that's come in overnight that is timely. So I'll spend maybe 15 minutes getting a jump on emails while I'm having my coffee and thinking about what the schedule for the day is. Once I get to the office, assuming I'm working in the office, and I I will say that at Global Giving, we give people a lot of flexibility. And so most everyone works from home at least one day a week. But let's say for this example, I'm coming into the office and a typical day might start with a 30-minute rapid fire check-in with my colleagues on the executive team to make sure that if there are any things that are kind of on fire or time sensitive where we need to come together and make decisions or make each other aware, we do that. So we do that every Monday. So that will take 30 to 45 minutes on a given day, at which point I might, again, sort of return to my emails. You're going to hear a lot about emails. And I think that's just reality these days. We're all looking for ways to reduce our email clutter, but might be responding to an email from Facebook about a program that we're managing from them. I might be responding to a Slack message. We use Slack as an internal communication tool from one of my colleagues who's based in Atlanta about a partnership that she manages and a question that came up or how did I feel about an email that they sent. I might be responding to an email from a prospect who I had sent some materials to from our blog recently to tell them what we're doing on disaster response, and they might be asking some follow-up questions. And then there could be, of course, lots and lots of daily clips and things about what's happening in the CSR sector, right? And I have a lot of alerts set and get a lot of digests from various sources so that I can easily scan and see if one of our key partners or a prospect has something exciting going on and use that as a prompt for either reminding myself to send them a note or make a phone call or do the same for one of my team members. Today, I've had a couple of very interesting meetings. We interviewed somebody for a job. We have an open position. So we had a lunch with our finalist, with the whole team. That was followed by an hour-long session with our finance lead on how do we think about the profitability in the nonprofit context of each of our partnerships and of our portfolio of partnerships overall. Prior to that, I had a phone call with our new colleague who 
works on business partnerships in our London office. And after this, <laughs> I'm going to be meeting with a colleague about planning because we have our annual all hands meeting coming up in about a month. And so we're all doing strategic planning for 2019 and budgeting for 2019. In the middle of all that, I'll be taking messages via my phone, responding to partners, responding to prospects. We're in the throes of negotiating a pretty big deal that I'm excited about right now. So I have been making some phone calls in doing work in the evening, reviewing term sheets and that sort of closing a deal kind of activity. I'm tired just telling you. I'm tired too. I'm kind of exhausted thinking about that. Oh my God. I want to pick up on something you said, Donna. You mentioned the profitability of a partnership. What did you mean by that? How is a partnership in and of itself profitable? Right. So global giving, as I mentioned, is a little different from a typical nonprofit. We're not raising money for ourselves and our services. We are a crowdfunding platform that enables other nonprofits to raise money. So we make it possible for a great nonprofit in Kenya or India or Mexico or Baltimore to use all of the tools that we've created to raise funds, to get trained, to talk to and meet peers, to thank their donors, etc. And we retain a small portion of every donation as compensation to help offset our costs. And that's one part of our business. And then the other part is the part that I run, which is these services that we're providing. So in the case of Ford, as I described earlier, we are vetting organizations all over the world to make sure that they are legitimate nonprofits, that they don't pose any reputation risk to our partner, that they qualify with the IRS to receive funds from a U.S. entity like Global Giving. And then we're interfacing with those nonprofits as they implement the work that the grant is funding. And so Ford, rather than us keeping a percentage of that, Ford pays us annually almost like a retainer or a consulting fee. So what we call advisory service fees. And that's a little bit different than a typical nonprofit. So when I say we're talking about profitability, we're looking at what are the actual costs involved in providing those services to Ford Motor Company Fund, and not just my time and the people on my direct team, but what is the amount of time that the people who do disbursement of funds is spending? What is the amount of time that the tech team who supports our effort is spending? What is the amount of time that our vetting and grants team is spending? And then on top of that, what portion of the general costs of global giving should be allocated to the partnerships team and in particular to that partnership with Ford. And that then tells us, is the revenue that they're paying us sufficient to not only cover our costs, but to help pay for some of the infrastructure and things at global giving that we want to do as part of our mission that may not be revenue generating? Okay, that makes sense. It almost sounds to me like your team must be tracking their time the way consultants do. Yep. We use a tool. Everybody in the organization uses a time tracking tool that allows us to do what's called activities-based costing. So if I spend an hour on the phone with Facebook, I track that. If I spend an hour in meetings, I track that. You know, some people are a little more type A about it, shall we say, and really keep track of every 15 or 30 minutes, especially our technology developers. At my level, I take a few liberties with rounding. 
Yeah. I'm big in the rounding category myself. Oh my goodness. Donna, among the various corporations that you have partnered with, you mentioned Nike, you mentioned Discovery, obviously Ford. Can you kind of walk us through how you or one of your team members would go about cultivating that new relationship and turning it into a meaningful partnership for global giving. I'd be happy to. And of course, there isn't just one way to do that. Cultivation of new partnerships takes many different forms and often takes many different twists and turns before it becomes an actual relationship. And so at a very basic level, we are doing research and paying attention to who's doing what in the industry. We know who the leaders are in various parts of the philanthropic sector. We know which companies that are U.S. and U.K. based have interests outside of the U.S. and have employees and offices outside of the U.S. And we really try to work with companies that are a good strategic fit. We don't work with thousands of companies. We work at any given time with maybe 50 to 100 because there needs to be alignment between their purpose and the authenticity of their interest in helping their communities or in enabling their employees to help communities. And so we actually screen every company that we work with through a sort of vetting screen to make sure that we are comfortable that a partnership is the best thing for global giving in that case. Often how the partnerships emerge is through word of mouth and referrals. And so you mentioned Nike. I can think of off the top of my head a number of our current partners who were referred by Nike. And so much of how we do our cultivation is by providing great partnership services to our existing partners. That is strategy numero uno. We also attend conferences where folks gather to learn about corporate social responsibility or sustainability or to strategize about employee engagement and giving programs or volunteering programs. And we meet people at those conferences. We try to speak on panels so that they see the kind of work we're doing. We have something that we call a learn library on globalgiving.org that is like your website, very well organized. You have yours organized around sector and the type of work. We have ours organized around themes. So there's a corporate social responsibility theme in our learn library, which is essentially our content. And we do case studies and research and highlight our partnerships and drive people to that. And so we find that people do find us by Googling a particular subject and ending up there. We do email marketing. So we do all of the typical business to business type outreach. As far as the cultivation process, we philosophically do not think of ourselves as hardcore salespeople. We think of ourselves as problem solvers. And since Global Giving is a mission-driven organization, we are very clear that if the problem a company is trying to solve doesn't really fit for us, if we aren't the best partner for them, we will tell them that 
and help them find the best partner. And so part of our cultivation process is really, really listening to what a company is saying they're trying to accomplish, seeing if we have a product or service or solution for them that makes the best sense. If we do, then it pretty much takes a typical route of, well, we got to sign a contract. So depending upon the complexity, that might be a one-page agreement or it might be a 47-page legal agreement that the lawyers have to look at. And then we go through a process of making sure internally we're set up to handle the partnership. It might involve some technical work to customize some pieces of our technology and our website. It might involve adding staff. It might involve assigning a new partnerships manager to that new partner, getting all the operational pieces in place. Gotcha. Thanks for that very comprehensive answer. And I just want to say thank you so much for equating the Time for Coffee website with Global Givings. In all (laughs) honesty, Donna, I think we're at very different levels, okay? I mean, that was incredibly (laughs) gracious of you. But I have to say, I think Time for Coffee has a ways to go before we are way up there with Global Giving. You know, I want to get into what you studied as an undergrad in a few minutes, Donna. But before I do, I actually have a two-part question. What do you recommend our listeners study for those who are still in school to prepare them for this career if they want to get into this side of the house within the nonprofit world? And for those who've already graduated What skills are you looking for in the young people that you hire at Global Giving who want to work in the nonprofit, maybe in the development business partnership space? Well, I'm going to give an answer that you may be surprised about. I think that the single most important class or classes that people can take or skill sets is finance. And the reason I think that is because everything has to do with money. It is no different in the nonprofit sector than it is in the political sector or the for-profit sector. If you can't generate the funds to do your work, you can't achieve your mission. And the complexity of social enterprises, of foundations who are funding nonprofits, of impact investing, all of the evolution of the nonprofit sector and the social impact sector really compel me to say that people who want to succeed in this part of the economy really need to understand how money works and need to be able to navigate their way around financial materials and basic sort of concepts of finance. So I highly recommend that anyone interested in the social sector not avoid the math and finance side of their curriculum. In fact, we see quite a number of people who are working at Global Giving in the program side. So directly with nonprofits, not so much with companies going back to school, and they're not going back to get master's in public policy, they're going back to get MBAs. You know, I have to say, I am not that surprised to hear you say that. I think that is certainly in my experience, something that from my time in Mercy Corps that I did see as an opportunity for young people with that skill set. I really did just the more that you get into sort of what are the solutions to reach scale 
in the various communities that you're working, if you have that financial wherewithal, you have a better understanding of how marketplaces work. And after all, that's the engine that so many businesses need to thrive. So I think that that makes a whole lot of sense, Donna. I was just going to tuck in that particularly in this kind of business development, corporate partnership development part of the social sector, it is exceedingly helpful to be able to speak to the people in the companies in their language. And their language is pretty bullet pointy (laughs) and always tinged with budget dynamics. And I think that that rock solid understanding of what makes sense from a budget and financial standpoint for a partnership is really important. Ah, that is such an excellent point. And as you know, Donna, today there is an episode on Time for Coffee that's running with a young woman who is in the social impact, social entrepreneurial space. And she was a linguistics major undergrad, but she went and got her MBA so that she could not only speak the local language in the countries that she's working in, and she's in Latin America right now, but also so she could exactly what you were just talking about, speak with the investors and speak with the social entrepreneurs themselves in a language that made sense and that everybody understood. So I want to talk about your time as an undergrad. You went to the University of California, Davis, and you majored in, drumroll please, (laughs) agriculture and managerial economics. Donna, (laughs) Why? (laughs) No, what I was going to ask you is, did you know what you were going to do with those degrees when you graduated? I had no idea, Andrea, what I was going to do with my degree when I graduated. I had started in school anticipating, wanting to be, ironically, given who I'm speaking with right now, a journalism major. Really? Yes. Davis did not have a journalism major, and I didn't have to declare. So I thought, well, maybe I'll be an English major. That's close. And then I read the syllabus. I think that's what you call it. It's been a long time since I was at UC Davis, as you know. But I read it, and it said that for every class, you had to write a term paper. And I thought, ugh, that sounds dreary. So... After about a year when I had to declare a major, I had taken a couple of economics classes and I decided I would be a business major. But alas, UC Davis in the early 1980s did not have a business major. (laughs) The closest thing it had was agricultural and managerial economics. Now, since Many of your listeners are probably not that familiar with UC Davis. I should say that it is located near Sacramento, California, and it is one of the original land-grant type universities. It was an agricultural powerhouse and still is. It's also the home of the number one viticulture and enology program in the United States. That means grape growing and winemaking also coming out of the agricultural history. And so the emphasis in the major that I had was on managerial economics, not on the farm management part of it. Although I did take one class where I had to essentially run a farming business and plant crops 
simulate planting crops for an entire semester. It was actually quite interesting because I come from a family of ranchers. Oh, That is interesting. And I have to say to you, just in solidarity, when I chose my major at Middlebury, I really wanted to study history, but then I realized you were going to have to write a thesis. And I mean, this is the problem when you're 18, 19 years old and you're making decisions. I mean, it was a stupid call on my part not to major in history, but I feel you. I feel your pain. I don't know, Andrea. I think your career's turned out okay. It turned out okay, but I think it goes back to really listening to your heart and thinking about what you will enjoy and like getting over, in my case, this kind of very immature decision that I made that I didn't want to write a thesis. I probably would have really enjoyed it if I had done it. But you know what? This isn't about me, Donna. This is about you. (laughs) I think I made the best possible decision by avoiding those term papers. And I'll tell you why. Because I had to take a statistics class to major in the one that I got. And I had convinced myself before that that I didn't like math or anything like math. I loved statistics. And I spent 17 years before being in the nonprofit sector working in financial services and particularly in mortgage finance, which is all about probabilities. And so that statistics class ended up being completely relevant to my work. And it's relevant today. I just wanted to say we could stop the presses and send out the news alert that we found the one person who enjoyed statistics. (laughs) But no, the more important point is that you actually were able to find practical use for it once you graduated, which I will get into in just a minute. Before we leave UC Davis in the early 80s, I want to ask you, Donna, what you did, if anything, outside of hitting the books, which I'm sure you did a lot of, that in hindsight turned out to be assets. And what I'm talking about is the extracurriculars, clubs that you were a part of, nonprofit work, volunteering, any maybe paid jobs or internships or anything that you did outside of schoolwork that in hindsight turned out to be assets once you started either looking for a job or actually working after you graduated? Well, I'd like to say that I spent most of my free time in the library, and that would be not truthful. I definitely enjoyed my college years and did fine at school, but I did have plenty of other activities to keep me busy. I played a lot of intramural sports. I had played sports in high school. I worked at the rec center, which there may be a theme here, and met a lot of people through that. I wrote for the newspaper, the college newspaper, in keeping with my interest in journalism. And I hung out with a lot of people who like to be outdoors. So we did do a lot of hiking. Davis is not terribly far from Lake Tahoe and the Sierra Nevada mountains. So that was something that I really enjoyed. There was a direct link between one of these things and my first job. When I finished up school, I, for personal reasons, wanted to stay in the area and was having really a hell of a time finding a job because it isn't, it wasn't at least, and it still isn't, the hotbed of business jobs. And I was 
interviewing for all sorts of crazy things that I'm too embarrassed to mention. But what happened was someone I had worked with at the rec center, I ran into her and she said, you know, my roommate got a job at a savings and loan that is growing because they're starting to do buy and sell mortgages. And they're really different from a typical savings and loan. And they're right here in Davis and they're looking for people. Do you want me to connect you to her? And that is the door through which I found my first job. And that led me to a career at Fannie Mae when Fannie Mae was a great place to work that gave me the flexibility ultimately to leave financial services and contemplate working in the nonprofit sector. And you actually spent 15 years at Fannie Mae. I mean, you built a career there. I did. I like to say that I grew up there because I started when I was 24 and I moved to Washington, D.C. from California about 10 months later and am still in Washington, D.C., even though I had a two-year plan because life took over. Oh, yeah. It has a way of doing that. (laughs) Donna, you never got a grad school degree, which is cool because I didn't either. I'm curious why you didn't. And while you've clearly done extremely well professionally, do you think at any time, whether it be earlier in your career or later, has it ever affected your ability to get a job that you wanted? Well, I considered getting a graduate degree, but not until I didn't need it. (laughs) And what I mean by that is I think I would want your listeners to realize that the job market, I believe, was very different than it is today. And the expectation for academic achievement were perhaps different. It could be because I live in a very affluent area, Washington. The focus on graduate degrees was just not as prevalent, at least where I lived, in my family, where I went to work after college. So it didn't occur to me initially that it was something that I wanted to do. I had some ideas in the back of my head about going to law school, But once my finance career kind of kicked into gear, I lost interest in that. I never really felt that the lack of a graduate degree hindered me as I made progress in my career. I really didn't. Yeah. No, I have a very similar experience. I mean, obviously, I didn't go the financial route, but I would say I couldn't really figure out what I wanted to go to grad school for earlier in my career. And then one day I woke up and I was like, oh my goodness, look how far I am. And I don't really know if I need a grad school degree, but things have changed. And today I'm guessing from your earlier answers, Donna, regarding Java junkies studying finance as undergrads that you would recommend that they get a grad school degree if they want to move up the totem pole today. I don't see any downside to a graduate degree besides debt, you know, I mean, and that can be considerable. So my advice is that people starting out in the workplace give themselves some time in the workplace to determine what the path seems to be for them. You asked me a while ago, did I know what I wanted to do? Did I know that I would use my degree? And the answer is just an unequivocal no. I am always amazed when people say, I knew at 18 what I wanted to do and I marched toward that and I did it. I commend that 
focus and that certainty. It just wasn't my experience. And I think with the velocity of change in our world, the impact of technology in disrupting different businesses, the challenges we're facing as societies and as a global community, agility and ability to adapt are the most important skills anybody can have as their career evolves. So if at some point you determine in order to get to the next step of where I can have the most impact and feel the best about what I'm contributing, if that step requires you, you believe, to get a graduate degree, go for it. But don't do it because you think it's the thing you should do. That is fantastic advice, Donna. Can you talk a bit about how you transitioned, you talked about agility, from doing what made sense in your life, what seemed to be the right thing to do in your professional life, to doing what you actually loved? (laughs) So I found toward the final years of my time at Fannie Mae that Well, I was running the strategy department and business strategy and corporate development for the last three years that I was there. And prior to that, I had been very much in the core business of buying and securitizing mortgages. And it was really during those three years that I came to realize that I would like to be in a slightly less structured culture. I spent more and more of my time on nonprofit boards. And I was able to do a lot of benchmarking of other companies for business development purposes. And I was asked to join the board of Business for Social Responsibility, which was just starting out and is a membership organization for companies who are interested in meeting like-minded peers and using services of an organization like BSR around corporate social responsibility. And the confluence of those things, I think, as well as some leadership changes at Fannie Mae, just came together for me in a way that allowed me to take a risk and leave. I wasn't laid off. I wasn't fired. I didn't leave angry. I left absolutely grateful for my opportunity there. But I knew that I wanted to do something with a little more meaning at its core. And I knew that I wanted to do something that allowed me to bring my whole self more to my work. And so I jumped. And it took me a couple of years to get all the way over to global giving. (laughs) And I was in a position that most people don't find themselves in. And I recognized that, which was to take my time. I had enough savings, thanks to my prior work, to explore working as a fellow inside a nonprofit, to do a little bit of consulting to nonprofits and for-profits, and to network. And I wouldn't have said I set out to network for two years, but in reality, that's what I did. I met different people doing really cool things all over the world. And when people gave me opportunities to do new things, I jumped at them. And I actually met the founder of Global Giving, which was at that time based three miles from my home in Geneva, Switzerland. Oh my gosh. Because a former board colleague had invited me to go to a gathering there of social entrepreneurs. And I said to him, what is social entrepreneurship? (laughs) But I 
hadn't been to Geneva. And it sounded like I was going to get exposed to a lot of really cool people doing great work all over the world. And literally that changed the trajectory of my work life and my life. Donna, it reminds me of the interview that I did with Joe DeSina who started Spartan Races. And one of the takeaways that I got from listening to Joe talk about his career is that you're not going to find your path, what he calls your true north, sitting on the couch. You got to go and do and push yourself outside of your comfort zone and meet as many people or get those new opportunities and new experiences. And only then will you perhaps cross paths with somebody who could change your life. Absolutely. Donna, as you know, in advance of these interviews, I ask all time for coffee guests if there's anything in particular they would like me to ask them. And one of the things you wanted me to discuss was what it was like for you as a gay woman growing up in corporate America in the 80s and the 90s. And in your answer, Donna, I think it would be wonderful if you could include any lessons that you may have learned, any wisdom that you could share, most importantly, the advice that you have for young LGBTQ professionals and LGBTQ students who will be professionals very soon. Maybe how to mindfully and strategically steer their careers into jobs and cultures and professions that will be supportive and inclusive, allowing them to be, as you so eloquently just said, their authentic selves. Yeah, the 1980s and 90s were a really different time in the workplace for LGBT people. And in anticipation of this conversation, I was thinking about something that happened to me. I'm going to say this was 1998-ish, maybe a little bit earlier. And there was a small group of what I'll call at the time activist gay men at Fannie Mae who really were pushing the company on awareness. And we had a very active diversity and inclusion program very early on, but it was primarily focused on race and ethnicity and to some degree gender. And they were really pushing the company in various ways. And two of these gentlemen came to my office and said that they were thinking about outing me to the rest of the company and my bosses and all the other executives. And I was a very senior person in the company at this point. And I was so stunned and angry that I can't even remember half the conversation. But the nugget that always comes back to me from that conversation that one of them said that I now realize is truth was unless those guys, and they weren't all guys, but using that generically, in that executive boardroom where you go every Monday morning for your meetings, know that there is one of us among them. They are going to act differently, say different things, come to different conclusions about policies. And I felt for a myriad of reasons at the time, I was not well positioned to be that person in that moment. And I certainly didn't want to be bullied into it. But in hindsight, what I realized is that's what's happened in society, is 
the fact that courageous people have been willing to declare who they are and put themselves into the role of obvious leadership in their companies, in their nonprofits, in their trade associations, in politics, gives hope to the rest of us that there isn't anything to hide. And so my advice to people who are thinking about the workforce or who feel stuck in a workforce where they cannot be their true and full selves is to look for the leaders and to look for organizations and companies, not that are overtly necessarily focused on LGBT issues, although that's great, but for whom the policies and mission could not be accomplished without full utilization of their entire team at 100% and openness to different perspectives, different experiences in life. And I think it's a lot easier today to find those organizations that are embracing in that way, that are progressive in that way, and it's a heck of a lot easier to identify the ones that aren't. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. So Donna, couple of final time for coffee questions here that I try to ask all my guests. And this one has to do with a time in your professional life when you struggled. And for some of us, there have been many times and it's sort of like, where would you like me to start? But for you, anything at any point when you felt like, oh God, how am I going to get through this period? But you just put your head down, you persevered and came through the other side. Maybe what lesson you learned as a result, if you could share a story that falls into that category. Yes, I could. This goes back to the very beginning of my career and my first job at Farmer Savings Bank in Davis, California. And my job was to go through these very thick books that listed all of the savings and loans in the country, and there were a lot in those days, and find the ones in the southeastern portion of the country that had a lot of mortgage assets, and to call someone there and ask them if they were interested in selling mortgages to a little unknown savings and loan in Davis, California. So I did that, and I worked with a more senior guy, and I did my best. And I went on a couple of trips with him and helped him close some deals. But the bosses, after about, and the bosses meaning like the CEO, after about four or five months of me not closing a big deal, decided I would be better suited in the back office doing something operational. And even that early in my career, I knew that is not what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a front office person, a front of the house person. And I also knew that the guy that I was working with, who was senior to me, would not have closed a couple of those deals if I hadn't been with him on those trips. But the bosses didn't know that because the guy, of course, was presenting himself as having done all these deals. So I was able to figure out a way to get onto a trip with one of the key executives. And he got to see me in action. And I just prepared myself for that meeting with a prospect and used my innate skills to navigate the meeting. And we won a very large deal for us at that time. And it was perseverance. It was using my brain. It was using some charm, I guess. 
but doing it in a way that wasn't obvious and it wasn't hurting my pseudo boss. And at the end of the year, so maybe three or four weeks later, I got a bonus check from the CEO and a little note written on like a notepad from the place that I still have today in an armoire in my bedroom. And it said, to Donna, the best comeback of the year, happy holidays. And I stayed in that role. (laughs) And if I hadn't stayed in that role, there is no way that the rest of my career would have evolved the way it did. Wow. So just out of curiosity, how long after you were relegated to the back office did you have that trip opportunity with that senior person at the bank? Well, they never actually got me to the back office. They were trying to be very kind and saying, you know, hey, maybe you should go talk to this woman who runs the back office stuff because maybe that's a better fit for you. So the trip was maybe two weeks later. So nothing had been decided. So I kind of threaded the needle there. Nice. Oh, wow. That is a great story, Donna. I love that you saved the note. I think we all have little mementos from various points in our professional life where there's something about that that provides you with both deep satisfaction, but also the fuel to keep digging in and persevering even in the current time. (laughs) So Donna, final time for coffee question. If you could go back to UC Davis and do it all over again, based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? You know, I knew you were going to ask me this question, and I've really struggled with it. I don't know why. I think that the advice I might give myself, strangely enough, is to go to class more. (laughs) This is probably really a bad thing to say since many of your listeners are still in school. (laughs) I missed a lot of classes. And I had figured out, at least in the program I was in, that as long as you took notes at most of the classes, got notes from your friends and studied the notes, you could do pretty well on the tests. And I was at a phase of my life, I was really trying to learn about myself more than learn stuff. And so I think my current self, which of course then was my future self, would say, maybe go to class more, be a little bit more engaged in the academic life of the school. Because I do think that the discipline that's involved with going to class, studying, preparing more is something that I would say I continue to struggle with. I do, despite having had a wonderful ride in two different chapters so far, and you know maybe there'll be a third chapter, I still find myself preparing for things at the last minute or not having researched one particular piece of a company's work that I should have because I kind of did it a little bit on the fly. And so I think the discipline that is involved in really focusing on college level or graduate school level academics is something that probably would have benefited me. Well, you get an A in preparation for your Time for Coffee podcast interview, as far as I'm concerned. And I actually think that is fantastic advice for young people who are in school right now, that as much as it might feel good to press the snooze on the alarm for that morning class, you will probably get more out of your college experience if you actually got up and went. Well, Donna, thank you so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. I loved 
talking with you and learning more about your career. And I think I'm burying the lead here to say that you have been at Global Giving for 15 years which is the same amount of time that you were at Fannie Mae. And holy cow, what an amazing opportunity for the young people who come into global giving to have someone who's been there and has that continuity and that perspective to offer. So continued success in your professional life and in the wonderful work that global giving is doing every day. Thank you so much. This has been so fun and it's great to connect with you again. And I hope that all of your Java junkies stay caffeinated. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much. Thanks so much.